We're back in Jonah. Um, As you know, over the winter, there will be two different series running beside each other. Steve will be talking about faith on the front lines, how we model that in our everyday lives and where we find ourselves. And I will be journeying with you our way through the book of Jonah. And two weeks ago, we sort of painted the scene. We gave an overview, and today we're going to launch right in. We're going to go back to verses 1 to 3, and then we're going to build on and expand what we learned last time as a way to show us that as we encounter Jonah in this story, as we encounter the sailors in this story, and as we encounter ourselves in God's story, that every human heart is indeed a mystery. So let's jump straight in. Verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And right from the outset, what we see is that the book of Jonah contains a mystery. Because if you're anything like me and are naturally a wee bit inquisitive, you'll think, well, hang on a minute. How did that word of the Lord actually come to Jonah? And the passage doesn't answer it for us. Did it come through a vision? Did it come through a dream? Did it come through someone speaking to him? Did it come through a circumstance? Did it come through a letter or an adventure? No answer is given in the passage we have shared today together or indeed in the rest of the Old Testament. All we know is the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And all that we have recorded for us is Jonah's response. Jonah was called. Not only was Jonah called, but he was actually deeply disturbed by being called. And as we saw last time, he was unable to accept it. The book opens with the command to get up and go. Jonah is in this book being called by God to do something other than maintain the status quo. Get up and go. But there is an interesting twist. But because as we read the words, but Jonah rose, we sort of expect that what we will find is the narrator saying that Jonah rose and followed what God was telling him to do. But as we saw last time, that is not the case. Because what we actually read is that Jonah gets up, so he does that bit right, but decides to go in the opposite direction. And if you remember, we discovered that Jonah actually flees to a place that was really a modern-day paradise. He flees or tries to flee from the creator of the creation to a place where the creator's work is most on display in all his techni color. But then, if you know your Old Testament history, which the scholars helped me do this week, you'll discover that fleeing was nothing new in the history of the Israelites. If you look back through Scripture, you will see that there are indeed many instances when people fled from the presence of something. Think, for example, of Moses and David. Think how Moses fled from Pharaoh because he was rightly afraid of the consequences of his action. Or think of how David fled from Absalom. But within the prophetic tradition, it is Jonah that stands alone as fleeing from the presence of God. 
But as far as Jonah was concerned, whilst he might be able to change his mind about whether or not to follow what God was calling him to, God would not change his love for Jonah. And as we discover as the chapter unfolds, God ain't gonna let Jonah go just that easy. Because as we journey through the chapter, what we see is that a great storm ensues. A great storm in which the ship is almost wrecked and Jonah is cast into the sea. And one could take a step back and ask the question, is this storm actually a mirror image of the storm and inner turmoil that exists in the prophet's life? Maybe the storm this morning reflects his inner turbulence, his excitement, his remorse, and his whirlwind passion and guilt. And perhaps if the answer to that question is yes, then it enables us, the hearer and the reader today, to identify with Jonah. Because then it seems that Jonah actually becomes a sort of embodiment of the human condition. We see Jonah as a relatively normal guy, or as a form of every man or every woman. He's, like, he's no Moses or David or those other characters listed in the heroes of the faith because of their great exploits. For when we contrast their great actions with Jonah, really what we have for Jonah is no great sense of admiration, but rather a sense of sympathy. It is Moses and David that are on stained glass windows, not Jonah. Interesting thought. How many churches have we ever entered? And I'm just looking around and hoping that that's not true here. How many churches have we ever entered and seen Jonah on a stained glass window? But as we journey through the rest of this book, what we will see as we journey together is that the response that Jonah has to God's call leads to chaos, leads to storm, leads to death, leads to compromise, leads to hypocrisy, leads to self-regard, and leads to logical but irresolvable anger. And as we journey through it, what we will see is that only the continuing presence of the Lord could restore Jonah to the peace that he had lost in the running away. Jonah was being called to go beyond, to go beyond the boundaries of his safe and comfortable world into the enemy territory. And what we see is that it was a call far too challenging for Jonah. And I suppose what we want to ask ourselves this morning, is there a place where we have heard God calling us to that really when we hear that call, we just go, hang on a minute, God, that's just a step too far. What in our lives this morning is God calling us to just as he was calling Jonah to? Maybe this morning we need to stop feeling the safety that comes within these nice, comfortable walls. Maybe we need, whilst the hymns are lovely and the stained glass windows, maybe at the end of this service what we need to do is to rise and to respond, to rise and go, as God was calling Jonah to, out into the world. 
Because what you'll see is, as Blondie would sing, one way or another, God is going to accomplish his mission in the world. And as we move on from those first three verses that we looked at and explored two weeks ago, what we see is now that the tensions are actually building. The tensions that have been building now begin to be played out. Because God has called the prophet, but the prophet remains silenced. Jonah was called to get up, but he actually goes down. Jonah is called to go east, and he actually goes west. And from standing in the presence of God, he sets out to flee from that very presence. What will happen next? Well, what happens, as we all know, is the storm, the wind, and the tempest. So let's look at that a little bit further. Let's break it down. The storm. The imagery of the storm would have been one familiar with the original hearers, because they would have known that God was indeed in control of the winds and the seas and ultimately their lives. The storm. And then we see wind and we see tempest. Simple words on the surface, but as we have seen time and time again, simple words they may appear on the surface. But when we begin to scratch beneath them, what we see is actually they're there for a reason. Because what we see is that actually they're loaded with meaning. Wind. Ruah in Hebrew. Now, I have to confess, I did not do the best at Hebrew at college, so please bear with the pronunciations here. But anyway, that word is a word uh, with a variety of meanings. Spirit or breath. Think about how it's used in the Genesis account. The Spirit of God was on moving over the face of the waters. While the tempest, on the other hand, the Hebrew word is sar, which contains some onomatopoeia, hinting at the sound of the wind as it shrieks through the the ship's, goodness, that is a funny sentence to say, as it shrieks through the ship's rigging. But those who heard this story in its original language would not have missed the subtle nuance that is a little harder for us as modern-day hearers to grasp. But suddenly, in the midst of this storm, what we are introduced to is another group of characters. Suddenly, we learn a little bit about the sailors. And when we begin to look at and examine and reflect upon the sailors, what we actually see is that there is something interesting and indeed intriguing going on here. Because what we see is that on the surface, they don't seem to respond to the circumstances as we might expect. There's a boat. There's a storm. What are they going to do? Well, the natural thing to do is to do everything possible to save the boats and themselves. But look at where Jonah is in the midst of this while it's all going on. Where is Jonah? Where is the prophet of the Lord? Well, he's not up on the deck trying to do everything possible to save lives. Rather, he is in the depths of the boat, sleeping. Where is Jonah when disaster strikes? Jonah is in a deep sleep. 
Because surely he would have been being um, tossed about on that boat as the storm hit. And anyone's natural response would have been to try and save the situations. Even the musicians on the Titanic still played to try and have a sense of calm as the ship was almost certainly sinking. What we see in the story of Jonah in these verses is that the very guy who was fleeing from an evangelistic calling finds himself in the midst of an evangelistic situation. Because when the prophet finally does rise to the occasion, when the prophet finally wakes up and comes onto the deck, what we see is the sailors are beginning to ask questions. Who are you? Who is your God? What is happening. Sounds a wee bit familiar if anybody was traveling to the States during the summer. It sounds a wee bit like emigration control, doesn't it? Who are you? Where are you from? What are you doing here? But at last, at last we see that the silence of the prophet is broken and Jonah begins to speak. And what does he say into the midst of the uncertainty and the impending disaster? Well, he utters the words, I am a Hebrew who fears the Lord. And through this simple statement, he emerges from his hiding place and in so doing becomes who he is. The recognition of who he is to the sailors also serves as a method for him to self-recognition. But this morning, what we want to get to and what we want to focus on is the fact that every, that in everyday life we discover that every human heart is a mystery. Our own hearts are a mystery to ourselves. Why do we do the things we do? Why did Jonah respond in this way? Why do the people we love choose to respond to us in certain ways at certain times? Why does the human heart do what it does? And in our reading, what we see is the mystery of Jonah's heart being put on full display. Contrast, if you will, Jonah with the sailors. Then ask ourselves, which group do we most identify with? The sailors are doing everything they can to make the boat lighter. Jonah sleeps. The sailors cry out. Jonah is silent. The sailors do everything they can to preserve Jonah's life But the prophet just wants it to end. But hang on, wasn't Jonah supposed to be the good guy? Wasn't Jonah the prophet of the Lord? Surely, in this moment when push came to shove, if anyone was going to do the right thing, surely it's going to be Jonah. But once again, we have the narrator playing with the original hearers and challenging our conventionality. Surely, surely Jonah is the good guy. Surely the sailors who aren't Jewish are the archetypal lost people, but not in this story. Surely Jonah is supposed to be found, but in reality he's asleep. Not just a Sunday afternoon doze, but a deep sleep. And the questions, who are the people asking the questions? Well, what we discover is that the questioners are actually the sailors. While Jonah's heart is hard, it is the sailors who are worshipping. See, the story 
of Jonah is affirming to us and challenging us with something that really deep down we know. Sometimes the world doesn't just work the way we thought it was going to. And if that's true in our own lives and in our own situations and the lives of others that we meet on a daily basis, sometimes it just doesn't work the way we thought it would. Could it also, would it be, could it be a step too far to say that maybe the same could be true of the church? Surely, just like Jonah, the Christians are the ones that will treat you fairly, while the pagans are the opposite. Surely the church is the place where everyone gives the benefit of the doubt. It's all the other institutions of the world that are in chaos. It is in them that we find gossip and backstabbing. Is it the church that's full of good people who worship God while everyone else out there is lacking in morality and goodness? Because when we scrape the surface, when we delve into Jonah chapter 1, what we, say, what we see and read is a chapter that is completely turning things on its head. Because after all, as we encounter the prophet, we see a prophet who not only stays still, but rather what we have is a prophet who actually runs in the opposite direction. And it, we've seen that it's actually the pagans on the one hand that are showing us something. Is it them that's telling us more than Jonah? Because if we look at their behavior, it is them who are worshiping. It is them who are making sacrifices. It is them who are making vows. Because nothing seems in the story of Jonah to be working the way we think it should. I'm going to try and throw in a quote here from a famous Russian novelist, and a bit like the Hebrew, I'm going to struggle with the pronunciation of this as well. Dostoevsky. Is that right, Francis? Could you shout out how that's supposed? Did that sound okay? We get by with that? Okay. Well, anyway, that guy who wrote the book, The Idiot, okay, has one line in it which reads like this. One can't be straight with perfection. To obtain perfection, one must first of all be able not to understand many things, because if we understand things too quickly, we may perhaps fail to understand them at all. And as we come to the story of Jonah, we think we know how it should play out. And as we come to the story of our lives, we think we know how it should play out also. But this morning, in the thinking that we know how it's going to play out, what are we actually missing? What are we failing to understand? What could God be saying to us that we are completely missing? Because by the time we reach the end of chapter one, what we see is that whilst Jonah was fleeing, it's actually the men on the boat that are found fearing God. And what we see is that God has a purpose that God has people that he wants to engage with, that God has people with whom he is looking to have a conversation with. And whether Jonah wants to do it or not, Jonah is not going to get in the way of what God is trying to accomplish because he will fulfill his plans and his purposes and what he wants in his world. Jonah and the sailors, who are we? Who do we identify with? Are we fleeing or are we like those who are fine, not quite sure who this God is, but worshiping him all 
the same. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, once again, as we come to your word, we are mindful of the challenges that we find in Scripture, how ancient words can speak into contemporary contexts, how you, through your word, lead us and guide us in daily living. And so this morning, we pray that as we go from here, that we would be listening to your call, that we would hear it just like Jonah did, but that you would give us the courage not to run in the opposite direction. Sometimes, You're calling us to scary things. Sometimes you're calling us to things that we just don't feel equipped to do. Sometimes you're calling us in directions that we don't want to go. But Father, we pray that it wouldn't take a storm and that it wouldn't take a big fish for us to get round to doing them for you. But rather by small, simple steps and acts of faith that we may hear your call, respond to it, and be your presence in the lives of those around us and on our streets and in our cities. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.